The Silicon Valley Beat, Major Crimes, is a podcast that deep dives into major cases investigated by the Mountain View Police Department. Because this podcast covers investigations including critical incidents and homicides, what we discuss here may contain material that is not suitable for all listeners. Names and other sensitive information may be changed to protect the identity of the innocent. On last week's episode, investigators were finally able to meet the man they thought was a suspect in the death of 21-year-old Ethiopian immigrant Saba Germay. But over the course of a two-hour conversation, Daniel Garcia, suspect number one, suddenly began to break any and all theories about his involvement in the case, providing reasonable doubt at every turn. Then suddenly, the course of the conversation changes, and finally, the death of Saba Germay may see some closures. This is the Silicon Valley Beat, Major Crimes. This is shits, man. I ain't gonna be able to see my girl grow up. Episode 5. Case Closed. I got a lot to lose. That was the moment that changed everything for Detective Chris Kikuchi and Investigator Nate Wandruff. Everything that had been assumed about this meeting, every second that they felt their one shot at solving this case was slipping away, suddenly, they were right back in it. When we first met, um, you know, we always like to establish uh, rapport with someone, and you know, we've never met him before. Um, so we asked questions related to his family, and he was very talkative, which is uh, which is good, because anytime someone will speak, um, we just like letting them continue on as long as they do, because we want that person to become comfortable uh, speaking with the police, and and he was. Let's look at that a little more closely. Why is rapport with anyone, but particularly a suspect, so important in investigations? According to the work Investigative Interviewing, Rights, Research, Regulation, published in 2006, rapport with an interview subject, including suspects in a criminal case, is, quote, the heart of the interview. In fact, in a study titled Police Interviewing and Interrogation, Establishing some kind of rapport with a suspect was the fourth most used technique during questioning. In short, rapport in this case was a huge factor in establishing any sort of communication line between Daniel Garcia and the detectives. Having never met before, this rapport was vital to establishing a quick but solidly built foundation on which the interview could continue in hopes of having any resolution to the case. He kind of portrayed himself as... as pretty relaxed um, as he's speaking with us. He, um, like I said, he was very talkative. Uh, he wasn't asking too many questions, which you'd kind of expect. Um, if detectives come out to visit you during a probation meeting, um, he wasn't asking a lot of questions, which I thought was a little peculiar. Peculiar, Kikuchi said. Remember, Kikuchi was concerned that this expedition down to Fresno would not lead to any results, and thus far, he seemed to be somewhat right. But is Daniel Garcia's lack of questions proof of his innocence, or perhaps proof that maybe there's something more there? As we were speaking, um, he just basically he got into a little bit more detail about um, an incident that occurred. Uh, regarding her basically saying that, you know, she had scratched him. Um, and that's how, you know, 
the DNA. That's how her DNA was on her fingers because unprovoked, she had scratched him. Um, again, at, during some incident where she was asking him for food or alcohol, he said no, and she scratched him. So that's how he kind of explained the DNA. A perfectly plausible reason for why Daniel Garcia's DNA was underneath Saba's fingernails. The fact that we had the DNA at all was extraordinary, as you learned back in episode two. And if Daniel Garcia had stuck with that story, in fact, he would have technically been the victim of an assault. At that point, we uh, he kept on uh, mentioning that. we He never admitted to harming her or doing anything to her at that point. So we just kind of stressed, look, just, just tell us the truth. That's all we want. We just want the truth. Um, at, w- at which point, then he started giving a little bit more. He, he said some to the effect of, you know, that my... I have a lot to lose at that point. And uh, then he finally gave a little bit more detailed description as to what happened uh, during the incident. We're getting something now, right? And, and uh, we just wanted him to continue talking. And there was about to be another bombshell. Similar to other episodes, what you are about to hear is actual audio from the interview with Daniel Garcia. It contains strong language and content that is not suitable for all listeners. Discretion is strongly advised. Just the truth, that's all we want. We just want the truth. It's what they had come for all along. Five small words, and yet, a very crucial request. Daniel Garcia looked at the detectives, then, and something, some essence in the room shifted. And that was when everything changed. We got into a confrontation. Yeah, we did. We got into a confrontation. As I was getting in my car, she jumped in the car. I told her to get out. She didn't want to get out. I reached over and I grabbed her. She passed out. I didn't know she. She passed out. I thought she was just passed out. She didn't move anymore. I drove somewhere. I don't know where it was. And I, I thought she was still alive. I threw in the garbage can. Threw her in the garbage can? Is that what someone who is innocent does to someone? Who they think may still be alive? I went home. Nobody else was involved, just me and her. That's how it went down. It was fast. I don't know what happened to her after that. I've never seen her again until you show me that. Now I know what happened to her. A shocking admission. After professing they had never touched, Daniel Garcia admits to discarding Saba's limp body into the trash. If you listen closely, You can even hear one of the detectives breathe, wow. 
in the stunned silence that follows Garcia's revelation. It wasn't a big argument. It was over in the latter minutes. I just remember strangling her. How did you do it? My hand. Your left hand? Probably both of them. I, I don't remember. I just remember I strangled her. But I never, ever did anything else to her. I didn't have sex with her, nothing. All right. All right. And there it was, in all its honest, albeit initially brief, detail. After nearly 30 years, detectives were finally hearing from the mouth of the man who killed Saba just what had happened. It had been a long, slow road to this moment. Relief and almost a sense of bewilderment on the part of the detectives can be heard as they say, all right, in response to what Garcia was saying. He almost got away with it. Almost, but not quite. It was ultimately asking for the truth that set this case free. At 2.05 p.m. on January 3rd, 2013, Detective Chris Kikuchi read Garcia his Miranda rights. Okay, I'm just gonna read your Miranda warrant, okay? What? Your Miranda rights, okay? You have the right to remain silent, do you understand? Yes. Anything you say may be used against you in court, do you understand? Yes. You have the right to the presence of an attorney before enduring any questioning, do you understand? Yes. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be appointed for you free of charge before any questioning, if you want. Do you understand? Yes. Okay. And then, we began to learn just what happened the day Saba was killed. Inside a white Ford station wagon, outside an apartment complex in San Jose on January 18, 1985. Here is Daniel Garcia in his confession, telling Kikuchi and Wandruff just what happened. Just another reminder, this section contains strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Well, it's like I was telling you, I got home from work. Same story, I got home from work, I sat down, I was eating my dinner. She came up to me asking for money, food, stuff like that. I told her that I work hard for mine, you need to get a job, bitch. Leave me alone. She kept pestering me, I got up, she slapped me. And then she scratched me, and I just went to my room, got nothing of it. Came back downstairs, she was still there. Again, she got in my face. And I told her, just get out of my face, you know what I mean? Just get out of my face. And she kept blah, 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 blah. And I, so what happened during the second confrontation? She got up in your face, you said, what does that yeah, mean? Yeah, she got up started calling me names, you know what I mean? And stuff like, like that. Like what, you remember what she called you? Fucker, asshole, whatever, you know what I mean? I told her to get out of my face, and she just kept going, kept going. All right. Then I jumped in my car. She jumped in my car. She wouldn't get out of my car. I kicked her. I told her to get out of my car. What car were you in at the time? Uh, that car's no longer around. No, that's okay. It was, uh, it was a Ford. A Ford? Yeah, it was a Ford wagon. What year it was, I don't remember. A Ford wagon? What color was it? White. White. I was really going to my dad's when the second confrontation happened. Never mm -hmm. made it to my dad's. 
All I can remember is she kept going at it. She jumped in my car. And we were in my car. She was still asking for beer and money and something to eat. And I kicked her. I told her to get the fuck out of my car. So wait a second. Why was she attacking you? Why was she... Did she I think you owed her money or I have no idea. promises? Did you guys do dope together? Never. Did Never. she owe you dope? You owe her Never. dope? So none of that. So why was she so focused on you if you weren't I, the one? I don't know. Probably because I called her some... Some names? Yeah. Okay, you called her bitch and hoe yeah. or whatever else? You remember anything else? No, you know what I mean? Just, just about it. Kept calling her effing bitch, effing bitch. Telling her to get the hell away from me. Did you say leave me alone, yeah. fuck off, any of that? Yeah. And she said she just kept coming at you? Was she yeah. still calling your names? She followed me to the car, cussing me out. Like so if I was her old man. Was she acting intoxicated or high or... She was slurring her words, you know what I mean? But then, like I said, she talked funny anyways. She was slurring her words, and she wouldn't just leave me alone. So you got in the driver's side? Yeah. How did she get in the car? Through the passenger side. Was it unlocked? The windows were down. The windows didn't work on the car. So you got in? What did you say when she got in the car? I told her to get the fuck out. Just like that? Yeah. And that's when you kicked her? Yeah. Where did you kick her? In the chest right here. Did you kick her hard? Did you yeah, 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 I had my steel toe boots on. Oh, really? Yeah, I was still coming from work. I had steel toe boots on. Okay. Steel-toed boots. In the small cabin of the Ford station wagon, amidst an argument about food, money, and beer, Daniel Garcia contorted his body to deliver a striking kick to Saba's chest. The impact of steel on skin and bone had horrific consequences. It was such a powerful blow Daniel Garcia could recall that, quote, her eyes watered bad. I kicked in her ribcage. Oh, her eyes watered bad. She wouldn't get out of the car. That's when I grabbed her by her throat. Right there in front of the, uh, mm -hmm. so right there in the street? Wait a minute, was it dark out or light out? It was, I would say a little bit light. But it was in the street, right? Well, yeah, in the gutter right there in front of the apartment. Okay. Um, so, and so you kicked her, she, you told her to get the fuck out before or after you kicked her? Before. And then you kicked her? Yeah, and I told her to get the fuck out again. And then she didn't do it? No. Did she come at you again? No. So what happened? Nothing. That's when I reached over and I grabbed her by the throat and I said, you're going to get out one way or another. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. And she just... Passed out and she laid in the front seat. And from there, I kind of. I remember driving somewhere and I threw her out of the car in the trash can. Daniel Garcia is right handed. In his confession, he stated he believed he used only his right hand to strangle Saba. According to Garcia, the ordeal lasted roughly one minute. When you grabbed her, what hand did you grab her with? This hand. Right hand. Are you right-handed? Yeah. You do everything right-hand, throw hand, yeah. cut, everything. Yeah. You grab her like this? Yeah. Is it, did you use one hand or both hands? I don't, I think I just used the one hand. Because she has injuries on, on both sides of her neck. Do you remember if her, if she had a, a neck, you could reach your hand all the way around? Yeah, she probably did because she was real thin. Is that when she scratched you? No, she scratched me before. Okay. 
It's incredibly painful to hear about Saba's final moments, but each second in these cases must be accounted for. The more information Daniel Garcia could give investigators, the more they could ensure that they had all of the information necessary to successfully close Saba's case. But hearing about these final moments of Saba's life wasn't easy. And it was about to get even harder. What did she do when you grabbed her by the neck? She was swinging, you know what I mean? And then she just went blah. Okay. And that's, I, I thought I had her long enough just to make her lose her breath. Yeah. You grab her by the neck and you, you start, did you start to squeeze? Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you were squeezing hard? Now, granted, you had lost your temper at this point, right? You were pissed. Mm-hmm. Were you saying anything to her when you were choking her? Mm, no. Not that I can remember, no. Okay. Was she Probably saying did, anything to you? Remember. Was she saying anything to you? No, she was cussing at me and stuff and trying to hit me. She tried to hit you? Yeah. Did she ever connect? No. How long did that struggle go on? About a minute. Okay. And and what ended up happening when you grabbed her? I was like this, and she was there. And I told her, get out of my car. She didn't want to get out of my car. I scooted over, and I kicked her. Okay. And she kept coming at me, you know what I mean? Yelling at me and stuff, and I just went like that, and I grabbed her. And I just drove, I guess, to Mountain View or wherever it was. I don't remember. I just got in the car, got on the freeway, and I remember throwing her in a trash can. A trash can? Yeah, I said, fucking bitch. You know what I mean? So, wait a minute, a trash can? Yeah, a trash can. Like a little trash can? No, no, a big dumpster. Oh, a dumpster. And where was the dumpster? I don't know. I don't know. I don't. You know what I mean? That part I don't remember. You may be asking yourself, why do investigators keep asking the same question over and over again? Why are they continually clarifying what Garcia says? Because any shred of doubt and confusion about what he may have said or meant could be a hole in their interview and could pose problems down the road when the case goes to trial. They must know every detail, every second, They must confirm every comment. Garcia became upset when he realized just what he had done. And when I got to the edge, I pulled up and I shook her like that and she didn't do nothing again. And I touched her hand and she was cold. Is that that when you knew she was dead? Mm -hmm. Let me back up just a little bit. That's when I threw in the trash can. I understand. So when you let go of her and she wasn't moving, is that when you started to freak out? Mm-hmm. Did you think maybe she was dead then? No, I thought she was playing possum because I kicked her pretty hard and maybe she lost her breath or something. I guess what I'm asking is, Danny, you panicked because you thought you might have killed her. Yeah, it happened so fast. Did you think at that moment you might have killed her? Yeah. I mean, that was you were afraid of? That's what yeah. made you panic? Like, oh, shh. Yeah. Right? I just remember getting on the freeway, driving. I looked down. I was almost out of gas. I got to get back. So I just got off, went behind somewhere, there was a bend, over. You had her in the car, you got on a freeway, and at some point you said you reached over and you touched her hand. Is that because you were checking on her to see how yeah, she was doing? Yeah, to see if she was, yeah. And so what did you do? Tell me what you did. That's when I really freaked out, because I, when I felt her, she was cold. And I saw, oh, shit, she's dead, now she's dead. I kept thinking, she's dead, what am I going to do, what am I going to do? That hand touch was such a small gesture, but it had such huge repercussions. He knew she was dead, but 
he never called for help. He just knew that Saberger Mai, the young Ethiopian immigrant who was maybe a little rough around the edges, had her life cut short. Too short. Well, how did you end up deciding on a dumpster? I mean, what, how'd that go? What happened? Well, I just, like I said, I looked down, I was almost out of gas, and I knew I was on the freeway somewhere, and I had to get back home. Right. Before I ran out of gas, because I didn't have no money. Right. So if I would have ran out of gas, it'd have been over with. This detail really struck investigators. Here was Garcia talking about his concern about how much gas he had in the tank when he had a dead woman slumped over next to him in his car. In total, Garcia stated, the entire incident, from the time he and Saba fought in his car to him dumping her lifeless body in the Safeway dumpster, lasted about one hour. When Garcia pulled over to remove Saba from the car, he pulled her body so hard that when he lifted her up, her belt broke. Pieces, he recalled, were left in his car. I just grabbed her and when I threw her in there, she had her pants on because they were not in the car in the morning. In the morning, I went to the, the car wash, I sucked up all the belt pieces, there was no clothing in the car. Did you vacuum the whole car? Mm-hmm. How come you did that? Why? I don't know, I just wanted to vacuum all the pieces of the belt up because it was, uh, what do you call it? I forget what you call that crap. It's, anyways, it was all over the front seat. And I was vacuuming it up and I just my little vacuum old car. Yeah. Plus there was a dead girl in there. Yeah. Was it possible during all of this, when Daniel Garcia was so sure no one saw him, that he was having doubts? Is that why he went to such great lengths to remove all traces of Saba from his car? Because wasn't it possible that perhaps one of the witnesses whose interviews were detailed back in episode one could have heard or seen him? What about the father whose daughter was up late studying when she heard the ruckus outside of her window? What about the car that another witness saw in the area with a black woman inside? Were one of these memories possibly Saba and Daniel Garcia? After he detailed the crime to investigators, Garcia offered something more. He said he would take investigators to the residence in San Jose where he had killed Saba. Three hours later, investigators were brought to a place they were already familiar with, the Reed Street apartment where Daniel Garcia had said he had lived with his cousin back in 1985. Garcia noted he remembered the 7-Eleven on the left side of the complex. Sitting in the back of the car, Garcia pointed up to a second-story window with its lights on, noting that that was his room. As he and investigators walked up to the front of the complex, Garcia pointed to a green chair on the front porch of an apartment and stated that was where he was eating when he encountered Saba, when things began to devolve. She was asking me for money, food, she wanted my beer, he told investigators. I told her no. Then I got up. She slapped me and I called her a name and she scratched me. I went upstairs. Garcia noted that he took his food and his beer with him. But then, Garcia came back out a short while later. And... Saba was still there. As he walked outside, Garcia said Saba began yelling at him, and when he jumped into his car, she did too. That was when, he said, he started to panic. Garcia then took investigators on the route he believed he took to get back to Mountain View, where he would discard Saba's body in the dumpster. 
Officers drove onto Reed Street before getting onto Highway 280, a major thoroughfare in the South Bay that shoots off to both San Francisco and the East Bay. As detectives followed Garcia's instructions, they retraced the final leg of the journey, heading down an alley behind Safeway to park. According to Daniel Garcia, he had only known Saba for roughly a week before he killed her. They had never socialized together, never shared a meal. They had hardly even spoken to one another, just passing ships, so to speak. After his entire confession, Daniel Garcia was officially arrested for the murder of Saba Germay. Shortly thereafter, he would forgo a trial in lieu of immediate sentencing. Due to the length of time between when Saba was killed and when her killer was identified, Daniel Garcia was sentenced to just over a decade in state prison. It has been 35 years since Saba Germay was discovered in the dumpster behind Safeway in Mountain View. Today, Saba would have just recently celebrated her 56th birthday. Much of her Silicon Valley world has evolved since her death. But then again, some of her world still remains. The Reed Street apartments where she and Garcia had that horrific, fateful interaction still stand. The Safeway where Saba was found is still there. For years, we wondered, would we ever know what happened to Saba Germay? This semblance of closure was due, in part, to Daniel Garcia's cooperation and ultimately, his honesty. We may never know why Kikuchi's final plea for the truth was what finally led him to speak out. We do know, though, that his confession and Garcia's willingness to finally come clean about what happened that January in the front seat of a Ford station wagon was what helped bring some justice to Saba and some closure to her family and her extended community. If you liked what you heard throughout this series and you'd like to let us know, Leave your reviews and ratings on any listening platform you prefer on which you can find us. Silicon Valley Beat Major Crimes can be found on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with another story to tell on Silicon Valley Beat Major Crimes. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Beat Major Crimes. We want to extend our thanks to those who took the time to speak with us about this case, the complexities of investigative police work, and we want to send a special acknowledgement to the family of Saba Germay. For more details and for credit for the music and other source material used throughout our podcast, please visit the episode's website at pippa.io. We hope you have enjoyed listening to the Silicon Valley Beat Major Crimes. <laughs>